How can we solve the problem of poverty in Africa? Well, one of the solutions is by expanding free trade on the continent. Joining me to discuss this is Alexander Hammond, who is the director of the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity, which is a project run by the Institute of Economic Affairs in the United Kingdom in conjunction with the University of Buckingham. Alexander, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, great to talk to you too. So let's start out with this idea of free trade and why it's so beneficial. And in some ways, it's a bit counterintuitive uh, that expanding the scope of trade by reducing uh, barriers and tariffs and opening up your borders to uh, foreign trade actually increases prosperity. Could you help our viewers and listeners just to understand why that is the case? Well, sure, it's, it's a big question. Um, but I think quite simply it boils down to without trade, you can't improve your lot, you can't improve your well-being. And I think before talking about free trade between countries, it's best just to talk about trade as a concept itself. One can't even imagine a world where trade with others was impermissible. You'd have to grow your own, every, grow your own food yourself, build your own home, make your own appliances, and you wouldn't even be able to trade your labor for an income. So I think we know we'd be pretty poor pretty fast. And there have actually been quite a lot of examples over years of people trying to do basic tasks without trade. A few years ago, I think in 2014, 2015, an American man tried to make a sandwich from scratch, just a sandwich. He grew his own vegetables, he gathered salt from seawater, he milked a cow, he turned that milk into cheese, he pickled a cucumber, uh, did all these things, grounded his own flour as well, um, and gathered his own uh, everything that needs to go into it. Uh, oh, collected his own honey, that, that's what I was thinking, and personally killed the chicken. And it cost him about six months of his time and over $1,500. Although I think he cheated because he used a plane to go to the ocean to gather salt rather than either walking himself or I think building a plane, I think that would have been a better experiment. Um, and someone also did the same with a toaster. There's a brilliant TED talk, I'm sure you can find on YouTube after you've listened to this, um, that spent, he, the guy spent ten, tens of thousands of dollars and many, many months building the various things that go into a toaster. I mean, it only worked for four to five seconds before it started melting itself. And like people, no country has ever or can become rich in isolation. And there's a lot of evidence that uh, free trade is beneficial for our economic success. Every year, the Economic Freedom of the World Report, um, which is released by the Fraser Institute in Canada, and essentially that measures the, an economy's openness, how easy it is to trade, how easy it is to set up a business and not be harassed by governments. And it measures about 163 countries across five areas, which are freedom to trade, sound money, uh, property rights, regulation, and size of government. I mean, it gets ranks over countries on a score out of 10 and then puts them into quartiles. So the freest 25% and the bottom and middle 25%. And what it found is if you look at say GDP per capita in the freest quartile of countries, uh, it's 7.6 times higher than in the least free countries, about $44,000 compared to just $5,000. And that's adjusted for purchasing power and all those things um, and inflation, whatnot. And the same is true when we look at extreme poverty. The freest countries where it's easiest to trade with each other 
have an extreme poverty rate of just 1.7%. Of course, that's 1.7% too high, but in the least three countries, it's almost a third of people. And the same is true for life expectancy. In the freest quartile, it's 15 years longer. And for many, that realistically, that's the difference between knowing your grandkids or dying before they are born. So economic freedom is hugely important. Um, but what it comes down to, I think, is specialization. Um, in the last 200 years, billions of people have risen out of extreme poverty. And most of those people have done it in the last 30 or so years. Um, Johan Norberg, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, has a great quote. So I'll paraphrase him for just a moment. He asks the question, what was the Industrial Revolution? He says, well, that's 200 million people doubling their average income in 60 years. Well, 2 billion people just did the same in 15 years, 10 times as many people in a fifth of the time. So in a way, the recent poverty alleviation we've seen over the last few years is 50 times bigger than the Industrial Revolution. And that's actually coincided with the fall of the USSR and welcoming dozens of states into a globalized economy. And I think if we just look around us, um, over time, thanks to free trade, as we become richer, our jobs have become more specialized. And I think that's really the secret source of economics is specialization, doing what you're good at and don't do what you're not good at. Um, and to me, national self-sufficiency, which is often debated now, now, especially after COVID, makes as much sense as city self-sufficiency or household self-sufficiency. And even if we were just to look at my phone, uh, a Samsung, it's a, its camera is from Japan, its accelerometer is from Germany, uh, using US technology, gyroscope from Switzerland, and I think it was assembled, and the batteries from China, and I know some of the minerals in it will be from various places in Africa. Imagine one nation trying to do that. Um, phones are fairly cheap now, maybe not the best smartphone on the market, but most people in the world are able to afford a mobile phone. But imagine there was no trade or that the high tariffs were put in place. That would mean it would either be impossible for a single nation to make or extremely expensive. So that's the benefits of free trade. And some may argue, yes, but free trade normally means you just ship jobs abroad. But it must be said in the vast majority of circumstances, that actually isn't true. It's technology that displaces most jobs nowadays. I think people who think jobs just go abroad to China still think of factories of having thousands of people come through the doors every day and people working on production lines. If, if you go to a factory now, and I used to work in a factory uh, before I worked in think tanks, I it's normally just a, a huge production line with about a couple of dozen workers normally on laptops behind screens in corner offices. So technology does most of the placing nowadays. And I think that analysis and that criticism of free trade that it takes job also ignores the consumer benefits of having cheaper goods all around us in our supermarkets. I live in England um, and imagine us trying to grow things like watermelons or pineapples <laughs> that just wouldn't be possible and would be awful and very expensive so trade is great for all of us and that is really the secret source of what makes economies rich okay alex well you mentioned that there still are a number of people who are mired in poverty extreme poverty and most of those people happen to live in sub-saharan africa so why is it that many african countries haven't discovered the secret source. If we look at 
most African countries, these economies are characterized by high tariffs, uh, barriers to trade, uh, they're very protectionist. So how come African countries haven't discovered the magic of free trade? Well, some have, and some have done very well. Um, Botswana normally scores very highly in economic freedom indexes, and their economy is doing very well. They've got an income just as high as higher than Mexico and Turkey. Um, Rwanda is growing extremely fast, and they normally score very high. Mauritius as well. They're normally in the top ten worldwide for economic freedom, and they're doing great. But as to why they haven't adopted it yet. Well, they have free African continental free trade area, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later in the podcast. But I think what's taken them a while is that after independence, socialism was very popular um, and it was championed as the only route to prosperity. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah, the first leader of an independent Ghana, proclaimed that a socialist transformation would eradicate the colonial structure of Ghana's economy, and he encouraged many other leaders across the continent to pursue a complete ownership of the economy by the state. And that's, and in the early days, they saw capitalism and colonialism as synonymous. Um, and then what followed after this early independence was a wave of various different types of socialism. As in Tory in Guinea, he pursued the Marxism in African clothing and banned all commercial activities not approved by government. So that has quite a big impact on any type of trade. In Tanzania, the constitution declared it as a socialist state and pledged to prevent the accumulation of any wealth. Uh, Senghor in Senegal said that Senegal after independence would be guided by Marx and Engels. And there's just dozens of these various types of socialism across the continent. Um, But often what that led to is huge oversized bureaucracies and created a norm of central planning, price controls, state-owned enterprises, expropriation without compensation, various things. And that began to change quite a lot uh, in the 90s, the fall of the USSR, which had bankrolled many African dictators. Um, After that fell, uh, broadly, sub-Saharan Africa's economic freedom did increase. Um, It didn't increase by huge margins, but it went from about five out of 10 to about six out of 10. And that has actually coincided with a lot of progress. Um, Since uh, I think it was about 1997 to 2017, so in 20 years, um, GDP in sub-Saharan Africa tripled, average incomes doubled, um, and life expectancy increased by 10 years. It was 10 years in 20 years, which is staggering. So and with the free trade era, we are beginning to move in the right direction. Um, but there's, I think there's been good reasons as to why it's taken so long. Okay, so it's a bit of a mixed picture when it comes to trade in Africa. But let's zoom in on the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. What are the origins of it? How did it come about? And where are we in terms of progress with the agreement? Sure. So it was first introduced all the way back in 2018. Um, And it's so far been signed by 54 of the 55 African Union states. The only one who hasn't signed up is Eritrea. Um, So it's hardly surprising they haven't done so. And it's been ratified by 37 states. So fully passed through their government and passed through the AU. And the African Continental Free Trade Area is a project of the African Union. 
and all the big players have ratified it. South Africa, Egypt, Nigeria, uh, those three countries alone make up, I think, almost half Africa's economy. Um, Kenya signed on, Angola, Algeria, um, and I think only one of the top, one of the biggest economies that haven't signed on yet is Morocco, um, but hopefully they'll do so soon. And the goal for it is that within five years for non-less developed countries, um, and for 10 years for less developed countries, it aims to remove 90% of good of tariffs on sorry 90% of tariffs on goods traded between African states. Um, within 10 years, sorry, within 13 years, 97% of tariffs should be removed. So that's great news. Hopefully, in 13 years' time now, 97% uh, of tariffs between member states who have signed up and ratified this agreement should be removed. And eventually, the free trade area will comprise several legal instruments covering trading goods, trading services, dispute settlements, investment, competition policy, and intellectual property rights. And the impact of this, the World Bank has predicted, so it's not just me as a free marketeer in the IEA um, saying how great free trade is, the World Bank has actually estimated if fully implemented um, and all states ratified it, within a couple of decades, it would lift 30 million people out of extreme poverty, which is, I think, about 7% of all people in extreme poverty. It will lift 68 million people out of moderate poverty and boost regional income by almost half a trillion, 450 billion. Um, and the World Bank also says that it will be the poorest nations that see the biggest rises um, and biggest, in biggest increases in well-being. As well as that, the Brookings Foundation also agrees, and Brookings Foundation is known for being a fairly centre-left organisation, not a free market organisation like the Institute of Economic Affairs. And they've said the free trade area would add billions to Africa's economy and help undo a sizable chunk of the COVID costs. So it was implemented formally um, on the 1st of January this year. However, as I mentioned, it will take a few years, five to 10 years, for there to be large-scale tariff reduction between member states. All right, Alex. Well, what about some of the political considerations around this? Uh, earlier, you mentioned Kwame Nkrumah and his vision for a united pan-African continent. Uh, that was largely a socialist vision. And what is the tension here? Because it seems that many... Uh, people, many leaders of African countries are coming together almost under this banner of African unity, which harks back to Nkrumah's vision. But essentially what you're discussing is a policy of free trade and exchange and capitalism, unbridled capitalism. So how do we reconcile those two tendencies? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept because so some scholars of Kwame Nkrumah do suggest that when he was suggesting a united Africa, he did want it to be a free trading between the states. However, I have an issue with that to an extent because Kwame Nkrumah also wanted the complete ownership of the economy by the state, and that's a quote. And then if we look across various states and how they regulated any type of commerce, it's completely against um, the current idea of free trade. Um, and if we look at Paul Kagame as an example, he describes himself as an avid free trader. Um, and even Cyril Ramaphosa said that he was, he said that free trade would make Africa rich. 
and he was supportive of free trade area and he actually referenced Kwame Nkrumah saying his pan-African ideas have come true. So we're in an interesting situation where even those on the left are supportive of this free trade area um, because it has a resemblance of this pan-African idea. But I think there's some great benefits to the free trade area for this because it means we can unite with people across the political spectrum. It doesn't normally just have to be as classical liberals or libertarians trying to push for message. It's everyone, even as I mentioned, the World Bank and Brookings Foundation. So we're in a weird situation, but it does seem to be broadly popular and it does seem to be a shift where free trade amongst African leaders is acceptable. Um, so hope, fingers crossed it goes ahead. It seems to be broadly popular and it does have some support from people who were quite keen for the Kwame Nkrumah uh, pan-African African socialist idea from back in the 60s. Alex, one country we haven't discussed yet is Nigeria and they were very late signatories or ratifiers of the agreement. I think they only ratified in December 2020, if I believe. Uh, so they, Nigeria is one of the largest economies, if not the largest, on the continent. What explains their recalcitrance or their reluctance to, to sign on? And do you see progress now that they have ratified the agreement? Yeah, Nigeria is an interesting case. Um, they said that it would be a very, very long time. Back in uh, last summer, they said it would be a very, very long time before they um, ratify the free trade area. But then just a couple of months later, they did so in December. But Nigeria is a very interesting case. They've ratified a free trade area. They've said they're supportive of it. However, their recent actions haven't been that of a free trading country. They've spent most of the, since August 2019, it was. They've, they've had their borders closed with Benin, Niger, Cameroon. Um, there's one other state I'm forgetting. And they've only recently allowed a partial reopening of the border where they allow people through but not types not not large trucks so very little trade can be done and these aren't really the actions of a free trading nation or a nation that's ready to embrace free trade so this speaks to a broader problem that there is a worry that many african states have ratified the free trade area just to get their feet under the table at the negotiation table um, in order to maybe push the free trade area in a less sound direction and towards that one of more protectionism. A number of years ago, I read a book by Robert Guest called The Shackled Continent. And in there, he tells a story of accompanying a beer truck through Cameroon. And along the way, this beer truck gets stuck in the mud. Uh, there are numerous uh, border controls or, or roadblocks where bribes are extorted. Uh, and it takes what would have taken six hours in a developed country, took 10 days uh, for this truck to get into inland Cameroon. So there are a number of non-tariff barriers to trade that make trade very difficult in these kinds of societies. Uh, so how do we overcome some of those non-tariff barriers like infrastructure, uh, the governance problems of corruption, for example? What, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a hugely important issue and one that the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa estimated that if the free trade area went through and all nations ratified that within a couple of decades, it could increase inter-regional African trade by 52%. Though it said, it was very quick to point out 
that this 52% figure could double if full trade facilitation, which is cutting red tape, bureaucracy, harmonizing standards, uh, occurs rather than just tariff liberalization alone. And as you mentioned, there's numerous problems to African uh, trade at the moment, corruption on borders, as in Nairobi a couple of years ago, I was speaking to a lady who um, her mother often transports eggs over borders. Um, and I think it was to Tan Tanzania. And when they turn up, they just don't know how many eggs they're going to have to give over. Sometimes out of, I'd say, a thousand eggs, it's just a couple the border guards want. Sometimes it's 30% of all the eggs. And that uncertainty is just so damaging to trade. And there's huge limitations to travel as well. Uh, citizens of the Republic of Congo need a visa to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, although citizens of, say, Micronesia or Haiti or Singapore don't need a visa to visit the DRC, which you can imagine just how much trade that limits. Uh, there's often takes months to get export licenses and the lack of infrastructure, and which makes it hugely expensive. Moving goods from Duula in Cameroon just um, to N'Djamena in Chad, which is just 1,500 kilometers, costs six times more than moving those same goods uh, 12,000 kilometers all the way to Hong Kong. Um, and that just shouldn't be the case. So the African Continental Free Trade Area does has actually set up a recent program to support focusing on eliminating non-tariff barriers. And they've created a website in which you can report non-tariff barriers to authorities. And I think as I was reading a recent example was um, a complaint was lodged uh, from a Tanzanian company accusing Kenyan authorities have of having denied their importation of glass products for no uh, uh, no real reason. And that was actually dealt with through the, the mechanism. However, it is always difficult to play catch up. Um, you can imagine the authorities deal with that problem and then another one just pops up a day later and that's actually been a complaint from some people in the AU. They deal with one non-tariff barrier then another one pops up just immediately after. Um, but one way the free trade area could help non-tariff barriers is actually through patents. Um, despite Africa's great tradition of innovation and creativity, when it comes to patents, this isn't really shown. And we can argue about if patents should exist or shouldn't exist, but pragmatically, it looks like they aren't going away anytime soon. And in 2017, African countries registered just 1,300 patents, which is just 100 times less than was what was registered in Europe, and Europe registered 116,000, and Asia registered almost 600,000. So 600,000 in Asia, just 1,300 in Africa. And what's more of a problem is that the majority of these uh, African patents were actually reg were registered by non-residents. And the reason for this, quite simply, is, is they're extremely expensive. In Kenya, uh, it's a uh, patent is about 13 times average incomes. In Ethiopia, it's eight times average incomes. Whereas in the US or Germany, it's just 0.1 in the US or 0.3 times average incomes in Germany. And often then tech has to be registered in every single country. And Botswana, there's been some examples of success. Botswana, Tanzania, South Africa um, have patent registration costs far lower, far below the African average. And as a result, this means they have far more patents than their neighboring countries. 
um, more innovation and a diverse export market, which is important uh, for African countries that are often reliant on commodities. So phase two of the free trade area negotiations will focus on patents and hopefully there will be a unilateral lowering or a set costs as well as a mutual recognition between countries. So that's what they can do. Hopefully the website's a success and hopefully uh, patents will also see some uniformity around them soon. Alex, that sounds like a good way to start, but what about the broader macro problems of policies related to nationalism? So, uh, you know, for example, one of the key pillars of free markets is also the free movement of people. And it's not just goods and services. So, and many African countries, as you explained earlier, are quite reluctant to allow citizens from other African countries over their borders. Uh, that's just one way in which nationalism manifests. Another is that political elites in Africa often use tariffs and other forms of taxation on trade as a way of securing rents for themselves and distributing that patronage to their cronies. So how do you begin to confront some of those political problems on the ground in many African countries? Well, coming to the issue of nationalism first, I think it's a really important one. And when we make the argument for greater African free trade, whether it be through the trade area or otherwise, I think it's important to consider pre-colonial African trade. There are vast trading networks across both the continent and outside from Africa to the rest of the world. And one of the worst legacies of colonialism was destroying these ancient trade routes that had been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Often colonizers in history would typically take over the administration of a place, um, but largely leave business and trade routes alone because they knew that's the source of wealth. But a lot of these trade routes were destroyed. And free trade actually helps to remove the arbitrar arbitrariness of the borders that were drawn up by the Europeans at the Berlin Conference in 1884. And I think that's what we need to remember is a lot of African borders, although there can be some nationalism, the idea of it is that free trade can actually help to remove a lot of these very harmful legacies of colonialism. And I think that's why we should all be supportive of it. And when it comes to um, governments arguing that okay, great free trade is good in principle, but we all actually receive a lot of money from tariffs. You don't understand, Mr. Hammond, is what I've heard before. We receive a lot of money from tariffs, and without that, we then can't afford other government programs. And what I say to that is, that's just kind of the difference between the seen and the unseen, the Frederick Bastiat idea that, sure, what they see is the direct money coming from the tariffs. But then what they don't see is if, say, if the tariffs were removed, that could potentially mean, I know, a factory is then more likely to be set up in their, um, in their country, which then can bring many jobs and may receive taxes from incomes, or alternatively, removing tariffs in, increases the amount of consumption, which means they receive more money from VAT um, or sales tax and things like that. So it's hard to explain because it's not a simple, it's, it's very easy to see the downsides and it takes longer to explain the benefits. But I think that's why think tanks and stuff like this podcast are so important. 
No, absolutely, Alex, and I, I share your uh, your sentiments, um, but I think it's also good to kind of uh, be very blunt and realistic about some of the political challenges that exist on the continent. What about some of the existing regional economic cooperation communities uh, that exist? So, for example, ECOWAS or the East African uh, community. Uh, how will these regional blocks integrate with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement? Sure. So there hasn't been too much on that in recent times, but the idea behind the broader continental free trade area is that if a regional economic community is more liberalized than the free trade area, the continental free trade area, then the regional economic community terms will apply. However, if the uh, a continental free trade area, it's hard to, with all these long names, with a continental free trade area is more liberalized than say trade between regional economic countries within regional economic communities, then their measures will apply. However, as you can imagine, it's extremely complex and I'm not admiring those who have to draw up the various legislation with the numerous regional economic communities and trying to figure out what is more liberalized and what isn't in each of the 55 countries and trade between them. I was watching a video the other day of the secretariat, the basically the executive head of the continental free trade area, saying that it's very important that signatory countries adhere to the rule of international trade law. And one of the critical areas that, or one of the foundations that underpins free trade is the ability to settle disputes if they were to arise some kind of international arbitration mechanism. Is this envisaged as part of the, uh, the, the broader kind of institutional framework of the free trade area? Yes, it is. Uh, in time, they hope to actually set up a dispute settlement mechanism. However, with a lot of these more uh, technical issues, because I think they've kind of bought themselves some time in the sense that with tariffs not having to liberalize for about five, 10 years, a lot of it is left unknown, but there is an aim to set up these dispute mechanisms, which are extremely important in kind of harmonizing trade across the country. Oh, sorry, across the continent. Alex, one of the things that I've heard mentioned is that the European Union almost acts as a template for the free trade agreement and what it's trying to achieve. Now you're with the Institute of Economic Affairs. And uh, I think some of the IEA commentary has been very critical of the EU as a structure that it's overly bureaucratized, has a tendency towards centralization, and that it infringes on the sovereignty of uh, member states. Uh, so, I mean, is that uh, not a, a kind of a cautionary tale about what Africa should try to avoid and where this process might end up? How do we avoid this tendency towards centralization and bureaucratization with the, the African free trade area? Yeah, sure. So before I get started, I should say the IEA itself has no corporate position. So any uh, criticisms or praise from the IEA are just from the employee's point of view as the organization doesn't have a view. But myself, I was a Brexiteer, um, which some people point out, oh, how come you're a Brexiteer? You want England to leave or UK to leave the EU, but then you're supportive of an African continental free trade area. And the explanation is, well, over the last 60 or so years, the 
EU has grown from a free trade area and a customs union among just six Western European countries um, into a huge supernatural, uh, supernational <laughs> uh, entity that governs many aspects of the daily lives of its almost half a billion citizens. It's got its own flag, its own anthem, currency, five presidents, um, a diplomatic service. But it all started as just a coal and steel community in 1952. And the idea was that the members coal and steel production would be organized by central authority. And that would actually then make war less likely. And Britain joined in 1973. And that was when the European economic community was little more than a free trade area and a customs union. But this began to change in 1992. The idea of an ever closer union accelerated after the Maastricht Treaty, and this transformed the European uh, economic community into what we now know as the EU. And hundreds of thousands of regulations became pouring out of Brussels. But some of these regulations, and I'm a libertarian, so I don't say this lightly, and good thing we're not being filmed on camera or anything. Some of these regulations were fairly good and encouraged greater trade. And an obscure but good example is if we look at tractors. Um, in the EU before 1992 and um, the Treaty, it was essentially impossible to create a tractor that was compliant across all EU nations. In Belgium, the tractor had to have a windscreen of one and a half centimeters thick. And this is likely because that the only glass manufacturers that created windscreens one and a half centimeters thick were based in Belgium. Um, in Portugal, the ratio of the circumference of the front wheels to the rear tires had to be two to three. And in Spain, it had to be three to four. In Finland, it had to have a, a escape hatch on the top. All these various things. And when these regulations were taken into account, it was logically impossible to create a tractor that was legally compliant across the EU. Thus, having the EU bring about some regulatory uniformity was broadly a good idea. However, as is the case with nearly all centralized bureaucracies, over time, it started to accumulate more and more power and more regulations kept coming. Uh, soon we had regulations for the maximum power of a vacuum cleaner, how curvy a banana could be, the conductivity of honey, um, and a ban on European manufacturers claiming that water prevents dehydration. Um, now, none of these it's alone is going to crash the uh, EU economies. These are quite trivial examples, but there are some more serious examples. For example, the common agricultural policy has resulted in mountains of butter and lakes of milk um, that were either destroyed or dumped into third world markets, um, because they which then undermined local producers. As well as that, we have the common fisheries policy that instead of preserving Europe's fish stock through the quota system, it nearly wiped them out. And a Dutch study once found that for every tonne of fish that was consumed, two to four tonnes of dead fish had to be tipped over the side of a boat to ensure the quota was met. So while the EU broke down economic barriers within the EU, it also made it less the EU itself less competitive on the world stage. And that problem largely stems from a centralized decision-making process in Brussels. And that's what Africa should really try to avoid. We should embrace the things like the non-tariff barrier website that 
aims to eliminate uh, all these various barriers, but not build them up. Um, and it's a really difficult balancing act. I'm not envious of those who have to um, try and figure this out. But I think looking at European history uh, over the last few decades is very important. It went from a free trade area that England, the UK wanted to be part of and was part of. We had a referendum in 1975 where 65% of people wanted to be part of it. And then over time, the centralization slowed it down and Western, a lot of countries in Europe don't really grow in normal times um, and has essentially shrunk Europe as a proportion of global GDP over time. And that's what Africa really must avoid. And Alex, you mentioned earlier property rights and the danger of expropriation without compensation. And in South Africa, we are currently having a debate around amending section 25 of the constitution to make provision for expropriation with null compensation. Uh, could you explain why that is such a significant risk and also why this idea of free trade and property rights are inextricably linked? Yeah, property rights, I think, is the thing that underpins other things that go into the recipe for economic growth. Uh, similar to what the Economic Freedom of the World Report measures, which is freedom to trade, sound money, regulation, uh, rule of law, uh, and basically size of government. All of them kind of depend on property rights in the first place. If, if we take freedom to trade, as we're talking about that today, if you don't have property rights underpinning a, a nation, you're then, there's no incentive for you to then produce anything to create anything, if you know that your risk, say if you risk setting up a shop, you're not going to take that risk if you know that a government or someone could theoretically come along and just take it from you, because otherwise you've lost everything, your livelihood. So without property rights underpinning a society, you essentially have nothing to trade in the first place. And there's been, I've, I've done work in the past comparing property rights to average incomes, um, like I discussed earlier with the broad economic freedom indices and results are just staggering. Um, I think, I forget what it was exactly, but I think it's the, free, the decile of countries, the 10% of countries with the strongest property rights have an income, I think it was about 16 times the weakest decile. And, 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 and what's amazing about it is uh, there's a graph and I'm sure we can uh, put the article in the link below the graph almost looks made up when I do compare the strength of property rights to GDP per capita because the first one is so big and then all the others are just the nine others are just so low and it's just been proven time and time again that property rights is what you need because without it you've got no incentive to virtually do anything. Uh, Alex I wholeheartedly agree so could you tell us more about your own personal work advancing the cause of free trade in Africa. And perhaps you could also tell us a bit more about the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. Yeah, sure. So three weeks ago today, um, I launched the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. And we're launching it now because we think it's a really important time in the future of African trade. And the future of African trade really is at a crossroads. I mentioned the benefits of a free trade area, but there's also a lot of problems. Long timeline for tariff reduction, things like non-tariff barriers, 
post-COVID economic nationalism. There's already been a few delays. Um, it was many going to place, the trade error was many going to place July last year, and they pushed it back because of COVID, but I don't think that's quite, I don't, I think even if COVID didn't exist, it would have had to been pushed back anyway. Um, and there's also many powerful anti-free trade stakeholders. However, it's also a unique opportunity to get a lot of people behind the ideas of free trade. The free trade area is in the news quite a lot now. And, but unfortunately, there's no free market unit uh, of classical liberals devoted to pushing intra-African trade. Sure, there's some organizations that have one or two trade people, but there's no unit or organization dedicated solely to it. So the way the IATP will work is by championing African free market solutions for increased prosperity by supporting those best positioned on the ground to make a change. And we do that by partnering with a plethora of local groups and think tanks to help make their voices that push for greater freedom more effective and louder. Um, by no means will the IATP be imposing our beliefs on others. Rather, we'll work with local actors who are either interested in finding out more about free trade or interested in interested in creating outputs that champion bottom-up African free trade, such as outputs could be articles, events, uh, videos, things like that. And with so far, bearing in mind, I've only been going three weeks, we've got nine partnerships across the continent. I hope to get that up to 12 um, within about two or three weeks. And yeah, come visit our website. We'll have regularly updated articles. It's theiatp.org um, and our Twitter handle is the underscore IATP. Um, we've got regularly updated articles, regularly updated videos, um, and we'll basically our work is to help local actors produce outputs, champion free trade that result in greater prosperity for all. Alexander Hammond, thank you very much. We'll put all of those links in the description and in the show notes as well. But I just wanted to thank you very much for sharing your insights uh, with me today. And I think that the case for African free trade is strong, but we do need institutions like the IATP uh, to, to help ignite the conversation and to really demonstrate the value uh, of the free exchange of goods, services and ideas. So uh, I wish you all the best with your initiative. Thanks a lot, David. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Alex.